What's up, Crime Turning Nation? Happy New Year, and welcome to another episode of As the Crime Turns. I'm your host, Desmond Ravel, and I'd like to thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. New episodes in this collection will drop randomly, so I suggest you stay subscribed so you're up to date. Also, check out the As the Crime Turns website to find additional details and extras about each week's story. While you're there, join our mailing list. That's www.asthecrimeturnspodcast.com. The year is 1993. Some notable events from 1993 include the classic Jurassic Park movie. Funny how there are still chapters of that today. A bomb-filled truck drove into the North Towers of the World Trade Center. After September 11, 2001, the victims from that bombing were also added to the World Trade Center Memorial. Oh, and how could I forget the lovable purple and green machine, Barney? Anyway, That July, on a hot summer night in North Carolina, a young man was cruising down Highway 74 en route to Charlotte Douglas International to catch a flight when he decided to stop and nap. With bored lurkers close by looking for an opportunity to come up, his demise was near. Little did they know they were messing with the father of the legend. This is the story of James R. Jordan. James was born close to the North Carolina coast in Wallace, July 31st, 1936. Research showed he had a rather small family. He grew up with his mother and father, William Edward Jordan and Rosa Bell Jordan, along with one sister, Mary Alice Jordan. After graduating from Charity High School in what today is Rose Hill, North Carolina, James set off to the U.S. Air Force but not before he could make a promise to the woman he planned to marry, Dolores Peoples. James promised Dolores, who was 15 at the time, that upon returning, he would indeed marry her. Dolores would eventually set off as well to the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. Unfortunately, being that far from home wasn't that good for Dolores, and she would return to North Carolina within the same year. Stationed in San Antonio, Texas, James worked hard to get transferred to Virginia, and in 1956, James and Dolores married. James and Dolores' first child was Ronnie Jr., James R. Jordan Jr. James was born around 1957. After meeting his firstborn, James decided to leave the Air Force. He would settle in a role at a textile mill back in Wallace. Not too far along, two more babies were born, Dolores and Larry. About five years later, between 1962 and 1963, the couple left their children with James's mother, Rosa, and they set off to Brooklyn, New York. James made a decision to take advantage of his educational options through the GI Bill and enrolled in mechanical school. For those of you who may not know what or much about the subject matter, the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944 also known as the GI Bill, was signed into law by Franklin D. Roosevelt on June 22, 1944. 
The bill was designed to aid the estimated 15 million or so veterans who would be unemployed. According to our documents.gov, the act offered federal aid to help veterans adjust to civilian life in the areas of hospitalization, purchase of homes and businesses, and especially education. This act provided tuition, subsistence, books and supplies, equipment, and counseling services for veterans to continue their education in school or college. Within the following seven years, approximately 8 million veterans received educational assistance. Under the act, approximately 2.3 million attended colleges and universities, 3.5 million received school training, and 3.4 received on-the-job training. The number of degrees awarded by U.S. colleges and universities more than doubled between 1940 and 50, and the percentage of Americans with bachelor's degrees or advanced degrees rose from 4.6% in 1945 to 25% a half a century later. Enough about that history lesson. For 18 months, the young Jordan couple lived in Brooklyn's Fort Greene community. Dolores found work at a local bank, while James focused on hydraulics, and on February 17, 1963, Dolores gave birth to Michael Jordan at Cumberland Hospital. After James graduated from his mechanical training, the couple packed up and took their talents back to the South. This time, they settled in Wilmington, North Carolina. Shortly after, they gave birth to another girl, Rosalind. This made a total of five children, Ronnie Jr., Dolores, Larry, Michael, and now Rosalind. Now, we all know his most popular child was none other than the Michael Jeffrey Jordan. It was James who taught Michael everything he knew about sports, including basketball and baseball, James's personal favorite. As a child, James built Mike a basketball court in the driveway, and the rest, I guess you could say, was simply organic. According to the fandom NBA family blog, initially, James taught Michael baseball, as that was his personal favorite. In fact, at one point in time, James had gone semi-pro in the baseball world. Now, after hearing this and reading it on the family blog, I dug a little to see what I could find related to James Jordan's baseball career, but unfortunately, I couldn't find much. If anyone is able to find anything, send me a message. Anyway, moving on. James was Michael's inspiration to play sports. Attend UNC Chapel Hill, just like Faith Hedgepeth in our season one episode, and eventually the NBA. From 1981, at the start of his career at UNC, James followed Michael's career as a VIP member of the entourage. It was 1984, according to notable biographies, that Mike was drafted as the third round pick to the Chicago Bulls. And from there, Mike, James, and the rest of the pack were all the way up. The summer before officially starting with the Bulls, Mike also played in the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. Of course, the team won gold, and of course, James was right by his side. Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls went on to win three NBA championships back-to-back with James Jordan right there along the way. According to BasketballReference.com, the 1993 championship game was against the Phoenix Suns June 9th through the 20th. Very well here today here at Chicago Stadium as we look at the beautiful Juanita Jordan, wife of Michael Jordan, and I am now joined by James Jordan, father of Michael. Now, James... Michael has told you this is their year, Andy. Well, you know, Michael says that 
They've gotten so close this year, and there's no assurance that they're going to get this close again, so he's certainly like to go all the way. So for all the parents out there, was there one point when you thought that Michael was going to be as great a player as he is? No, there was no way you could tell. You know, I always thought Michael would play baseball. Of course, he had that year that he, he grew so much, and it's just been a joy watching him develop into the player that the world can see today. All right, hopefully we can watch him all the way through the playoffs. I hope so. If he do, I'll be right there. I'll be his number one fan all the way through. All right, thanks, James. Yeah, my ba pleasure. Back to you, Mark. In just a matter of weeks after Michael was named MVP for the third time, scoring 666 points against the Phoenix Suns, his life would take a turn for the worse. On July 23rd, James was in Wilmington, North Carolina. He had driven from Charlotte, where I imagine he was living at the time, for a funeral. According to the New York Times, he attended the funeral of Willie J. Kemp, a longtime friend and coworker when they worked at General Electric plant in Wilmington. After the funeral, Jordan visited Kemp's widow, Azella, in Atkinson, a small town about 20 miles northwest of Wilmington, and left around 9 p.m. to drive a friend back to Wilmington. The friend, Carolyn Robinson, told authorities that Jordan left after dinner around midnight, saying he planned to drive back to Charlotte. Jordan had told Robinson that he would be leaving the next day for Chicago. This next part kind of threw me for a loop until I assessed the fact that the year is 1993. Things hadn't gotten quite bad as we have seen today. But anyway, as James crossed into Lumberton, North Carolina and got on a Highway 74, he stopped to take a nap. I could imagine he was tired. It was after midnight. Of course, it was summer, so it was hot. He had been fellowshipping all day. To be a little bit fatigued was normal. Being from North Carolina and knowing these roads, James was on the home stretch to what we know as Independence Boulevard in Union County and further into Charlotte. But anyway, unfortunately for James, he would never wake up. About four or five days after James's birthday, July 31st to be exact, a fisherman and local carpenter, Hall Creek, was rowing along a remote gum swamp in McColl, South Carolina, when he found a decomposed body swinging from a tree limb. The decomposition had become so advanced it was obvious the body had been there for about one to three weeks. Around August 6, 1993, a red Lexus Coupe 400 SC was found in a wooded area in Cumberland County in or near the Fayetteville area. The car had been vandalized and stripped. Windows were smashed, tires and rims were gone. The same exact day, an autopsy was performed on the found body in Gum Swamp. The cause of death, a single gunshot wound to the chest using a 38 caliber firearm. Because the body was decaying so badly, the coroner had to perform a cremation on the body so that it could be stored in a cool environment. Prior to the cremation, the jaws, teeth, and hands were removed. It took the dental records from a family dentist to determine it was James R. Jordan. Jordan's body was found August 3rd. The Jordan family has released a statement saying they are shocked by the sudden loss. They're withholding further comment while the investigation is underway. Or in Lumberton, North Carolina. Mr. Jordan uh, had pulled off the side of the road uh, to obviously to rest for a while and he was shot to death while in his car and was taken 
to the state of South Carolina and placed into the swamp where he was found. Almost a month went by before James was reported missing. According to the New York Times, Dolores Jordan explained she had not heard from James since around July the 26th, but had no clue where he was calling from. According to family, it was normal for James to be on the road days on end before phoning, so no alarm went up when no one heard from him. His birthday was July 31st, as I mentioned earlier. He would have been 57 years old. According to the Times, the first arrest made was for Gary Rodell Farrier. It was said Gary helped strip the car, but had no ties to the actual murder. These findings seem to confirm the idea that they had yesterday that this was merely a random act of violence and not a premeditated murder. Again, throughout the morning, we'll continue to bring you the latest information we have on the arrest of two suspects in the murder of James Jordan. Now, private funeral services will be held this afternoon in Wallace, North Carolina. The first question that came to investigators was, was this accidental or intentional? It was rumored that during the late 80s and 90s, Michael Jordan had an aggressive appetite for gambling. Investigators initially thought this may have been the cause of his father's death. He loved casinos and allegedly betting on various golf endeavors. In fact, it was even said at one point in the novel, Michael and Me, Our Gambling Addiction and My Cry for Help by Richard Eskinis, that Michael had acquired a $1.25 million debt in a matter of 10 days, which was owed to Richard. However, due to lack of clues, it was safe to say it was almost impossible to rule James was killed because of Michael's bad debts. Around August the 13th, 1993, after thinking they had hit a lick and ran, Daniel Green and Larry Demery were arrested for the first degree murder of James R. Jordan. According to the Chicago Tribune, it was primarily erroneous calls made from James's cell phone in his Lexus by both men that led local investigators to their capture. What calls do you say? Well, according to the Chicago Tribune, one call was made on July 23, 1993 at 10.36 a.m. to Hubert Larry Deese in Pembroke. This would have been a mere matter of hours after James stopped to rest and subsequently was murdered and his car stolen. Another call was a few hours prior, around 7 a.m., to a sex line. Go figure. Investigations would later discover that over the initial 96 hours after James's death, a total of 36 calls were made. Most of the calls were to the family members and friends of both Larry and Daniel. It began to become obvious these men were the prime suspects. Two 18-year-olds accused of murdering the father of basketball star Michael Jordan appeared in court. Daniel Green, who had already spent time in jail for assault, and Larry Demery, who was under indictment for armed robbery, are good friends. They are both being held without bail. ABC's Jim Hickey is in North Carolina. As the two teenagers arrived for their appearance in Robinson County Court, North Carolina investigators said they had concrete evidence linking Daniel Green and Larry Demery to the murder of James Jordan. After questioning the suspects, deputies said they found a National Basketball Association all-star ring in a plastic bag, hidden in a rural part of the county. Michael Jordan apparently had given the ring to his father. These uh, two defendants did have was with uh, Mr. Jordan at one point in time because that we do know where that ring come from it did uh, belong or was in possession of mr jordan according to authorities jordan was killed along this stretch of north carolina highway in the early morning hours of july 23rd 
Driving to Charlotte, he apparently had pulled over to rest and was shot in his car. Police say the teenagers dumped his body in a South Carolina swamp about 60 miles away. Investigators say the two teenagers did not set out specifically to murder James Jordan, but that he just happened to be their victim when they went looking for someone to rob. Sad to hear that the two of them were just simply looking for someone to rob. The call made to Hubert Deese, July 23, 1993 at 10.36 a.m., ended up becoming particularly helpful as Larry Demery and Hubert Deese were colleagues and friends at the time. In fact, Hubert becomes an unofficial celebrity in the case. The trial will eventually become a he say he say battle between Green and Demery, one that is still going on almost 25 years later. I guess you'll just have to stay tuned to part two of the James Jordan story to hear how it goes. Until then, here's a small preview. The suspects apparently made several calls from the telephone in Jordan's luxury car. That's how detectives tracked them down. In court, Demery and Green said very little, but Demery at one point appeared to be weeping. This was merely a preliminary appearance. Their pleas of guilt or innocence will come later. The slaying perhaps occurred at the hands of third parties, not Mr. Demery, not Mr. Green. So are you saying that, that your, your client and Mr. Green may have stumbled across a corpse? There may very well be some evidence that that would be the case, yes ma'am. North Carolina authorities maintain there is no mistake and that, quote, we've got the right people. Tests on a 38 caliber gun believed to be the murder weapon could link the suspects to the killing. The results of the test are expected. Basketball? I haven't even thought about basketball. I didn't think about basketball before all this happened. So uh, you know, right now it's just summer relaxing and enjoying the company that I am in right now. That's it for today's episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed part one of the James R. Jordan story. Remember to stay subscribed. With the mini-sodes, I'll drop them randomly. So the best way to know when a new one is coming is to subscribe. As I said before, if you enjoyed the show today, please go on to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. If you can, leave a review. Let us know what you think. Also, be sure to keep up with us on social media. You can tweet us at As the Crime Turns. Follow us on Instagram at As the Crime Turns Podcast. And remember our website, www.asthecrimeturnspodcast.com. Until next time, I'm Desmond Dervell, and this is As the Crime Turns. Thank you.